Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we're talking with Daniel Hill. And if you're not familiar with Daniel, he released a book a couple of years ago called White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white. And so we're in for a great conversation today. Boom sauce. Um, yeah. So let's do that. We will. However, before we get to that, we will have our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. And this time, it's me, y'all, um, which is cool. So um, my resource of the week is something, a book that I have been reading, and it's called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. And it is probably one of the most interesting books that I've ever read. So it literally is a, so it does several things, but one of them is it goes through an actual timeline of, of humankind and it starts 13.8 billion years ago. Now, for those of you who are Christians out there who are saying, Todd, that's your heretic and crazy and all this stuff, just, just hang on, like don't freak out because I'll, I'll give you a couple things that it, it walks through. Um, it talks about how 13.8 billion years ago, matter and energy appear. There's the beginning of physics Atoms and molecules appear for the first time, and the beginning of life-giving chemistry for the first time occurs. Now, what does that sound like to you, Christians out there? Just going to put that out there. Um, and it just walks through the whole thing, and it's fascinating um, what all what all he goes through. Um, but it's it literally is, it talks about like the, when, when bows and arrows were first invented mm-hmm. and what significance that brought into the world it's it's i'm loving it It, it's it's great great writing he's a terrific terrific writer and so um uh it's it's a great read really have enjoyed it talks it just talks about the history of of humankind and i love it yeah it's it's been on my list to check out and i just haven't i haven't made it yet because i got a lot of books on my list but i'm looking forward to reading it here soon i listened to um i'm sure uh have you heard of the podcast Experts on Experts before? Yes. Or? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah, so I listened to him there. It's a very fascinating conversation. <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a great book. Um, I actually picked it up from uh, a recommendation from um, Brian Callen, who is one of the hosts of the Fighter and the Kid podcast. And, uh, yeah, he, he was talking about it. He talked about it like three or four episodes in a row. And I was like, okay, like I'm just going to read this. And so I listened mm-hmm. to it. And then I, and I'm like, this is so good that I need to buy it. So I, I have it on, on iBooks now. Sweet. Well, hey, that's our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. By the way, if this podcast brings you value, if this is a podcast that you find yourself regularly turning to, one of the best ways for you to be able to help us out would be to leave a rating and write a review. Seriously, it's the best way to help the podcast to gain um, credibility, notoriety, all those things. Leave a rating, write a review. It can take you literally less than two minutes, and you can do that through Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, all of the places. Go there. Do it. Please, please, please. It really is helpful. Yeah, so that's our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week, and we're going to jump into our conversation with Daniel Hill right now. Well, Daniel, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you. So honored to be here with you. Yeah, we're, we're really excited to dive into some of the material from your book, White Awake. 
Um, but before we get into that, can you just tell us a little bit um, about when you began experiencing becoming aware of racial differences in society and even into culture as well? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I look back now and I see that I was exposed to it on a pretty regular basis growing up. I think the opportunities are there for us to see it, if it's those of us who are white to see it, if we're willing to. Um, even moments where I came pretty up close to it. But I just think for different reasons, I chose not to engage it. In fact, I don't, this is not a subject that I'm suggesting we talk about today or not, but the topic white privilege is often kind of in this, in this conversation. And while I think there's probably different dimensions to that word, I like, I like how my friend, Reverend, Reverend Julie DeShazier talks about it, who's a pastor on the South side. And he says, privilege is simply the ability to walk away. Mm. And, um, which of course extends beyond just to race and to other things too. But I like that definition because I think that's probably the most problematic part of privilege is to be, to be white doesn't mean that you're not exposed to difficulties in other arenas, but to be white means you never have to like process through race stuff if you don't want to, because you can always live where you want to live with no threat to yourself. You always work where you want to work with no threat to yourself. You could relocate and you'll, people like you will be in charge. There's just so many levels we never have to think about. And I, I feel like my story is so much more about when I didn't pay attention to it than when I finally did. Um, when I finally did, it was actually, I was in my twenties. By then I was working at Willow Creek, a uh, mega church in the Chicago suburbs. And I was doing my first ever cross-cultural wedding. And uh, the groom was of Indian descent. His parents are from India and the woman was white. And he promised me that I was going to get a deep dive into his Indian culture through the wedding weekend. And so for whatever reason, this became the pivotal moment that Friday night of his wedding, um, you know, it was very, very much a strong Indian feel to the, the, whole, the whole evening. And um, when a particular Indian dance, a Dandia dance ended, I went up to him and I said, man, I am so jealous that you have a culture. I wish I had a culture like this to celebrate. And this guy who typically tends to be very gregarious and avoid heavy topics, he came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, when your culture win, when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, it almost always wins. It would be a great idea to learn about your culture. And so despite the fact that I had been exposed to this multiple times along the way, it was as a 24-year-old hearing that from my Indian friend that shook something loose and where I felt like I had to understand what he was talking about, that whiteness was a culture and that according to his words, when it comes in contact with other contact, uh, cultures, it wins. Mm -hmm. So would that, would you say that that's the reason why you decided then to write the book or is there other, other reasons that kind of trace for us the, the path that you took maybe from that moment until now, when you, when you kind of started typing on a computer somewhere and, re and really put, put these thoughts into book format. Yeah. I mean, it's, like all stories are. That's a long one. I can try to tell a very, very abbreviated version of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, that was that was 21 years ago that happened. And um, as I became more aware of this stuff, I actually promised God I would never write a book on race because <laughs> I didn't want to be a white person talking to white people about issues that affect people of color. So it's its own story that I ended up doing this. But, you know, what started for me was I, I actually really just wanted to disprove him. I felt like that was an unfair statement that white culture wins when it comes to other cultures. And so I started trying to ask around. And what I quickly discovered is that in my white Christian world, nobody was talking about this kind of stuff. And what I also discovered, and I didn't have language for this back then. I understand it now. I discovered that when I started asking about questions of race, I started quickly getting labeled um, in weird ways. You know, so I came from an evangelical setting. So my evangelical setting, if you start talking about race, you were either talking about political issues, social issues, or liberal issues. Um, and it was like so quickly um, discredited to even ask questions about it, which, was, which 
in some ways made me think my friend was onto something. <laughs> you know, it almost felt like these are not welcome questions in white Christian space. And again, we're talking about 22 years ago. So, you know, things may be changing a little bit in the broader white Christian culture. Um, so, so it was very confusing at the time. And to some degree, it's still true. At the time, what I discovered is that the people who are the, the great kind of quote Bible teachers, especially in evangelical settings, were mostly white and never talked about race. And the people who were great race thinkers were almost never Christians. <laughs> and they often were times were in academic or kind of activist circles. And so it took, I'd say it took me a decade or more to kind of learn about race from people outside of the church and then come back into church spaces and see how the gospel always had called us to address it, but that had never been theologically developed for me. And so I've always had a deep passion for the Bible. And so it created a faith crisis for me at first, but eventually led to kind of an anger, really, that feeling like the same community I had been taught the Bible in was also the same community that had either intentionally or unintentionally kind of chosen to read the Bible, filtering out some of the most clear teachings on this. And so I'm now at the point where I believe it's a theological imperative, and I actually think it's one of the biggest theological crises we have in our country, is the fourth and anemic theology around this. Um, but this, the, the bottom line, your question, this became not a social or political or liberal thing. It became a Jesus thing to me. I believed, I came to believe that it was one of the most central facets of his kingdom coming on heaven and on earth. And so it's kind of what led to the church plant we did. It's always been kind of a central tenant of our discipleship strategy. And so the writing of the book, you know, two, you know, 18 years later or whatever, it's just by that point, I had developed a, you know, a really rich group of mentors of color around the country, as well as a group of folks locally who I really kind of surrendered to. And in both circles, they said, you know, we like the way you've kind of gone on a learning journey on this. We think you should kind of write about some of how you've gone about learning. Don't, don't become some white expert, just kind of talk about how you've come, gone on a learning journey. And so it, it was really, a, I, I promised God I wouldn't do it. It was really felt like these these mentors of color were saying you need to do it. So I would actually have to told them, no, God's telling me no. <laughs> you know, and so it's a very kind of strange story how I came to write on this. But um, that's the kind of progression of the journey that happened. Uh, I guess the next question that I have, it, it seems weird to say to ask it out loud, but I think that it's important for us to understand this first to be able to get into the rest of our conversation today. And so uh, the question I wanted to ask is, what, what does it mean to be white? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a multi-layered question, as you're probably getting to. So I think to take a step back, I, I think um, we use a lot of terms interchangeably that are actually contributing to the confusion. So when I'm doing work on this stuff now, I create two different, not create, I think just reflect what's already been created. I, I, I delineate two different categories of language because I think it helps it helps create some separation where confusion happens. And so um, at the broadest level, when I'm like working in churches or nonprofits or education institutions, I encourage people to think of two different categories, like one category being diversity, one category being race. And I think when we talk about multi-ethnic, multiracial, multicultural, these things all get collapsed together, but I actually think it creates harm to do so. And so um, on the diversity side, I would say things like ethnicity or nation of origin kind of fall there. And the reason I think it's important to make this delineation on the diversity side, I think it's important that we do acknowledge that kind of our nationality, our ethnicity are part of the byproduct of how God has created us, right? Like probably the most famous verse for diversity in Christian settings would be Revelation 7, 9, that in heaven we'll see people of every tongue, every tribe, every nation glorifying, singing to God in their own tongue. 
God created diversity. God redeems diversity. I think ethnic and nationality differences are a reflection of God's design. I think of Acts 17, 26, I think it is, where the Apostle Paul is at Mars Hill. And he says, out of one man, Jesus, every nation was created. Um, their, their borders appointed before time. Right? So I think there's this sense of God's created diversity within who God is, and that reflects God. For me, what was very confusing and why I think it's important to acknowledge race as a separate category, the first thing when I started studying this, what does it mean to be white, to kind of reference your question again, the first thing I started hearing that was super confusing but right on point was that the, the people who study race would say the number one thing you have to understand about race is that race is a social construct. It's not created by God. It's created by human beings. And that was super confusing to me as somebody who believes that all humankind has created God's image, which is why I eventually had to kind of come to appreciate the difference between ethnicity, nationality, kind of the diversity of that versus the social construct of race. And I, we can go deep. I'll give the one minute version of this. And if you guys want to expand on it, we can. But, you know, race was a system created by perceived physical differences where then we create these groups called white, create these groups called Latino, create these groups called black. Indian, you know, Asian, um, you know, when European immigrants started first time coming to the United States of America, they were not called white, right? Nobody called them white people when they started coming, right? They were Dutch and they were Irish and they were English and they were Polish and they were French, right? In fact, there were often very significant squabbles between these different European groups as they were kind of vying for kind of their place here in this country. But in order to explain away some of the massive human right problems, most notably colonialism and the kind of the destruction of the native population and then slavery, you know, bringing the millions and millions of African slaves here, it was really starting to create a hierarchy and some kind of a story had to be created to justify the hierarchy, right? For a white Christian family to own black human beings, you had to have some kind of a story behind that of like what makes white people inherently capable, white Christians inherently capable of owning a human being. And so the system of race was really created. And race at its core is a human hierarchy. Race says the differences between race are not equivalent. They're not equal. Race is a hierarchy which says whiteness is supreme, blackness is inferior, and everybody else has to kind of find their sense of value or worth in between the spectrum of the inferiority of blackness and the supremacy of whiteness. And, and then there's these stories attached to it. And that's what made slavery able to happen was there was a powerful set of lies that said black people are inferior to white people. And therefore, inherently, they're, they're inherently designed to be ruled by white people. And it was necessary to get not only white people in general, but white Christians on board with slavery. And it's a very powerful set of lies, a very powerful story that's still just as much, I think you could say, at work today as it was then. And so the system of race was created to justify these, you know, abhorrent human right issues. And that's why it's so confusing to have cultural identity that's white specifically, because white is not a nationality, right? White is not an ethnicity. White is not something God created. It's a human created system. And so it is it is undoubtedly a balancing act to say, um, I, I, I embrace who God has created me to be as this person who reflects all these different heritages. For me, it would be Irish and French and German. And, you know, I'm who God made me to be. I'm a man made in God's image. But I'm created into this human-made system that says whiteness is inherently superior and has designed the entire created order in our country around that ideology that whiteness is superior. And so to be white is a complicated question because it says I'm a child of God who's born into a system that is inherently sinful in how it talks about human beings. And so I have to do this kind of balancing act of like separating out who I am as a child of God versus 
living in this system of smog that kind of communicates these nonstop messages of who human beings are, depending on where they fall on the racial hierarchy. I think that there's a real tendency um, for a lot of folks to 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 resist labeling our whiteness. Why? Why do you think that is? Like people, like there's a real resistance to. As soon as you you mentioned it earlier, as soon as you bring up, start bring asking these questions, there's this immediate resistance. And so, why do you think that there is such a a, a strong resistance to labeling our our own whiteness? Anything just at a more superficial level, like right, like we don't like un- no human being likes uncomfortable things. And so, white clearly has this enormous history around it. Who wants to? identify with that if they don't have to, right? Uh, so that's at one level. I think at, any, at the next level, you know, I, I think in this climate that we're in, to me, white, when you're white, the worst thing you could have said of you is that you're a racist, right? So there's an intense energy inside most white people that's, in me, even when we don't understand race, we know racism is bad. And so we're trying to figure out what is it that makes racism and then how can I prove I'm not racist? And so I think some of it is just this kind of very superficial response of like, well, maybe if I could like not identify with whiteness, then that proves I'm not racist. And so I think the energy to prove you're not racist, which we're on some of this later, I think it's important to actually address that in ourselves. But I think that's another reason where we know whiteness is associated with racism and we don't want to be racist. So if there's a way to just not identify with that, then that would be the preferable path, right? Is say So the unfortunate reality is it doesn't matter how we self-identify, it's how society identifies us. And that's what we're really trying to fight against, the system that identifies everybody based on a racial hierarchy. We don't really have the luxury of being able to say, I don't identify as that because this isn't about self-identification. But to your question, I think those are some of the reasons why any of us would prefer not to be identified as white if we could help it. I, so I want to dig. No, go ahead, Caleb. I was going to say, so what, what, are, what are a couple of things that helped you become more, um, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, or self-accepting of being white? So this is where you get these like big words that we throw around, but I don't know if we always really have a sense of what they mean, you know, um, in everyday life. So like individualism would be one of those words. You hear that a lot, right? Like Western individualism, but who knows what that means, right? This journey around race is one of the places where I see that happening. Um, if it's true, if, if somebody can follow my definition, if race is a construct that was created with the express purpose of defining human value, with whiteness is superior and blackness is inferior, but in between, if we could agree that that's what race does, um, then we could probably agree that as individuals, there should be a balance. We should be concerned of how that messaging has affected us, but then we should probably be even more concerned about how it affects society and how it affects others, right? Like how school systems are built off of that racial hierarchy narrative, how health systems are built off that racial hierarchy narrative, how you guys are in Ohio, right? I'm in Chicago. Like all of our cities in the North are constructed around race, right? When black refugees came from lynching environments in the South, they came in this enormous refugee migration to the northern cities. They were redlined. They were pushed into areas where white people weren't, and it's been calcified. And like the whole whole real estate system is built around this racial story, right? So that's what we should be most concerned about. Um, In all my work, and I'm doing up and down, I find most people can't ever get past themselves. They can't do anything but kind of center their own individual experience. Um, It's, it's, again, it's just it comes coming down to, what does this mean about me? Are you saying I'm a racist? Oh, my gosh, I'm so ashamed. Oh, I wish I was never white. Oh, I'm so overcome with grief. And I'm not meaning to be pejorative when I'm doing this. It's just Mm -hmm. there's these these swelling feelings that happen, which is really why I wrote White Awake. The most point of White, the biggest point is like trying to help people sort through all the internal emotions that are happening. And so to, to long way to get your question, 
I think the most important work for those of us who are white is not to figure out how to present ourselves differently. The most important work is to see how it's ravaging society and figure out how to become alert enough to the, the storylines of race and how it's shaping social structures and how we can combat that. And so once we can get there, we, we stop obsessing over – it's not that I'm saying we're, we, we no longer become introspective or look at the way it's mm-hmm. – but that's not what's – the cure to racism is not to get a critical mass of white people to be more politically correct, right? And to be the, – the cure to it is going to be to, you know, to unlinch its, its stronghold and all these social systems. And so I think once you can realize – or even like to, to make this like very close to home – where you see individualism happen. Like when I started getting deeper into this, I'd be in a circle with a couple of black folks who were slowly starting to trust me and let me into their circles. And so one of the signs of trust, I think when you're a white person, one of the signs of trust that you'll get from a racially conscious person of color is they'll start to talk about white supremacy in front of you, right? Because they see it every day and they lament it every day, but they don't usually talk about it in front of white people. So they would talk about it in front of me and I would again find these feelings of overwhelming guilt coming, like they'd be talking about the way they experience people in a store or the way they experience the police system or something, but I would immediately feel the need to like justify myself, right? Like they don't even talk about me and yet I'd want to prove that I'm not a racist in that moment. And over time I'd start to ask myself, why am I, they're not even talking about me, why am I defending myself right now and they're not even talking about me? And I realize that's because I keep centering my own individual experience within this. And so if there was one answer I would give to that, I would say learning to trust that the enemy is not white people or you. The enemy is the system of white supremacy. And until we can start to, like, join forces with people and seeing and resisting it, every time we center ourselves, which really is pretty instinctive, we can't help it because we're so shaped by an individual culture. But I think that's some of the most difficult work. It's actually pretty simple. At the end of the day, don't make it about you. Make it about the work out there. But because we're wired so deeply by individualism, I should think it's a it's hard work even though it's a simple step to make sure can, can you tell i wanted to dive in a little bit more on on something that you were just touching on which is the shame aspect of this why is it important that we don't let shame take over especially as a white person that we don't kind of give in to that desire to to feel um to be overwhelmed by it yeah, so I, I do want to preface by saying, if there's one chapter, I'm not sure I use the right language on it would be that one. Um, maybe more I practice with the book, but just even the shame. There are differing opinions on the word shame of whether it's a helpful word or a harmful word. So in the book I wrote, I accessed Brene Brown's work on this, and she's a very popular figure on shame right now. And so she would represent one side very well, that shame is a debilitating emotion that never produces positive results. And I follow what she's saying, even if shame's not the right word. She's describing something as right on. There would be others, though, many in the Asian-American community, even Brian Stevenson, whose work I reference a lot. Brian Stevenson would actually represent the other side. He would say the number one problem with the United States of America is that we don't have enough shame that we don't actually feel shame about the way we built the social structures that we built, which is, um, so I think what he's saying when he says shame, what Bernie Brown says when she says shame are, are different things, but I just, I just want to acknowledge that the word is a tricky one. Um, so I'm going to try to describe one aspect of it, but I'm trying to honor the fact there are other aspects of it. So I think the part we're talking about is once a white person's eyes become somewhat open to just how deeply demonic even really our past has been around using whiteness as a tool to not just oppress and marginalize but just to literally murder people i just got back from a lynching memorial in, in um, montgomery alabama where it tracks 4400 human beings between 1880 and 1940 that were lynched and killed for just even the slightest perceived offense against white people and oftentimes it was white churches they would hold a lynching in their 
church courtyard after church was over and watched a black body burn to death for talking to a white woman or something. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing the kind of sin that was done in the name of race and really still quite recent history. So what often happens for a white person when they see that is there's this overwhelming sense of guilt, shame, whatever is the right because um, maybe the guilt is the positive, maybe the shame is the negative. But the idea being, we see how bad it was, but then we internalize it where it's like, I wish I was never white, right? I don't want to be associated with white. I wish I didn't have this white skin. I wish I didn't have white parents. I wish I didn't have white grandparents. I wish I didn't have this kind of like, there's like different degrees of it. And the reason I would say that is dangerous is. Um, it, 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 there really is kind of an equivalent to Christianity here, right? It would be like saying, if God says, I love you and I want you to repent of your sin, and we say, I'm such a sinner, forget it, I can never respond to God. Like, I'm just too much of a sinner. Like, that obviously is going the wrong direction, right? Like, our, our grief, our awareness is not meant to push us away from God, it's meant to push us closer to God. That's the irony of grace, right? Is that the more you see sin, the more it's to push you towards God and um, rely on God's grace. And so I would say there's an equivalent to race here that the deeper we see that white supremacy goes, the more it should push us towards fighting against it. And so the shame is we're using it here works in the same way. If it creates distance between us and God, then it had the wrong effect. And if seeing the horrors of our past pushes us further away from positive action, then it had the wrong effect. That means we're centering ourselves, even if it's under something that appears innocent, like shame, instead of saying, this is this terrible system that's set up. And I think we just got to pull the threads apart. Like, nobody's saying that me or you as a white human being is, not, is less valuable than God. We're saying the system of race that says human beings' value is proximate to white whites. That's what we're condemning, not white people. Every person is an image bearer, whether we're wherever we fall, you know, on that ethnic spectrum. And so we have to learn to see the kind of evil that sustains these systems much more than the shame of kind of who I am as a person. That actually debilitates the work that needs to happen in terms of joining up against forces that are built around the system of race. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask a little bit um, and maybe get into a little bit of the nuance as you were talking about, um, you know, you were talking about Brene Brown's definition of shame. Um, now I want to hit on, you know, Brian Stevenson's definition of shame and why, why it is important for us to kind of own up to to our past yeah. um, as as white people why, why is it important that we do that and that we acknowledge that i mean it kind of goes to what you were saying about acknowledging the social construct and kind of the system as well but can you speak a little bit more about that yeah i, mean, I think you know arguably the most famous verse in the bible is john three sixteen, right for god so loved the world that he yeah. was the only son well, that's in a that's in the midst of a conversation with nicodemus right and um when jesus is talking to nicodemus he references numbers 21 where um the the people were grumbling against God, and as a punishment, the, there were serpents or poisonous serpents that were let loose, and the serpents were biting the Israelites and poisoning them. And in the Numbers 21, the people pray that God would deliver them. God delivers them not by taking the serpents away, but by telling Moses to hold up a serpent. And it's through the holding up of the serpent and the people looking to the serpent. It's, so the idea being, in fact, I think this is the medical symbol now, right, in the hospital tree. So the idea is that you have to look to the source of the pain to find healing to the pain. You have to look to the origin of the trauma to find the healing to the trauma. And so Jesus references that in John 3. He says in the same way that Moses held up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be held up, right? And so 
it's clear that it has mostly spiritual ramifications in terms of we look to Jesus for salvation. But I, by comparing, by linking it to Numbers 21, I think he's saying it's applicable to social realities as well, that we have to look at the source of the trauma to get the healing to the trauma. Um, and, and so that would be one of the reasons I would say that, that we are a traumatized nation because of the sin that we've committed. And the answer is never pretend like the sin isn't there, <laughs> like the trauma didn't happen. Um, that just allows the trauma to like kind of get embedded in and never be dealt with. And so um, I would say, like from a biblical perspective, I'm sure there's a lot of answers outside the Bible too, but from a biblical perspective, I think it's this notion of looking to looking honestly and taking account of what we did, oftentimes in the name of Christ, that that's not drumming up something that shouldn't be drummed up. That is the source of our ongoing trauma. And I think to be healed of it, we have to be able to tell the truth so we can begin a healing process. Mm-hmm. So um, for for the people who are Jesus followers and they're white and they're listening, um, we, we've talked about, uh, you know, a, a lot of like the history and the context and stuff like that. What What would you say might be a couple of things that Jesus followers who are white can do to be more part of the solution and not part of the problem? Well, I would say, so this sounds basic and it's not. So I'd like to say the most basic and important thing I think we can do is get better at telling the truth. We just kind of talked about this a little bit. Um, but at the most basic fundamental levels, Jesus associates himself with truth, right? John 14, 6, amongst other places, you know, I am the way, the truth, and life. All, many times he calls himself truth. And the devil most consistently is called a liar. Um, John eight forty four, Jesus says the devil is a liar. The devil's native tongue is that of lies, and he's the father of lies. Which I think is a really important thing to remember as a Christian, that anywhere lies exist, that's like the devil's playground. That's how the devil moves. That's how darkness moves. He traffics in lies. And so um, that's what race fundamentally is. It's a set of lies about human value, um, that a human value is not tied to their creation of God, but it's tied to their proximity to whiteness and the racial hierarchy. And so um, I think we have to get better and faster at theologically being able to talk about what race is, right? Like most churches will say racism is bad. That's not that's not the hard part, but they can't get anywhere past that. They have no idea like why racism is bad or why it's a threat to Jesus. And in fact, in many of these settings, it's still seen as a political or social issue. Um, the reason I think it's such a spiritual issue is because race is built on a lie about human value. And we've got to get theologically stronger at being able to understand why, in fact, some would say this is an overstatement. I don't believe it is. I think it's the mo- the number one theological crisis we have in our country is the inability to talk about race from a biblical perspective. Mm. I would say that's the number one theological crisis we have. And until we can talk about it theologically, we're just going to keep spinning our wheels, um, and there's going to be no movement weight so made whatsoever. So I, we can keep going if you want, but that stop it. Like learning how to tell the truth and expose lies is to me without question the most important thing we have to do. Because if you try to have this conversation in most white churches, even still, um, people leave the church, people get upset, people be very offended. If you do nothing more than just try to call truth and lies, you will lose 10% of a church over that. So we have a ton of work to do to even be able to tell the truth and expose lies. So uh, to, go, to go off of that, what, what would you see are some common lies uh, relating to, um, to race and uh, that you see most churches struggling with? And what would be the truth that, that, that they need to hear? Well, so even so, just even by start by defining terms, like we say, what is race and why is it a threat to the Bible or the mm-hmm. threat to Jesus? Most white Christians don't have an intelligent answer to that, right? Yeah. Like they can get to the surface level. 
if you're racist, if you overtly discriminate against somebody because of they're from a different skin, that's bad. And we'd agree that's bad, right? Or they would they would see something like Charlottesville and say, when you're organizing yourself around hate of a group, that's bad, right? That is bad. But that's that's the that's the extent of most Christian, white Christians' theology. Um, most white Christians have no concepts that race is built around the assault of the dignity of human beings. Right. And that's a thread that they can usually get on board. I mean, that's what the whole abortion kind of thing is around, right? Is the assault of the dignity of unborn children. I mean, race is built on the same thing, but it's just much farther reaching. And not that I'm even trying to compare the two of them. I think they're both important. But race is a 400-year-old project of discrediting humanity of everybody that's not white to different degrees. And at the most serious level of creating systems and structures that can punish and kill black people. And of course, it disfigures the humanity of white people in that too, to be told you're superior or inherently more intelligent or valuable or special. That's distorting to our humanity as well. But most white Christians have no theological understanding that that even is what race is. So I can get more than that if you want, but even just a starting point, there's no common understanding of theologically why race is such an incredible threat to the kingdom of God. Yeah, con- continue to elaborate because I'm, I find myself taking in a lot of, like I just, I'm learning a lot as well. So yeah, keep going. So I'd say colorblindness is another lie. Um, I think a lot of us, certainly me, um, but many of us, many of us grew up in environments that promoted colorblindness, which, um, the, the, so I'll define it first, then I'll say what's okay about it, and I'll say what's dangerous, let's lie about it. So colorblindness says we shouldn't acknowledge cultural differences, ethnic differences, cultural differences. We should see all peoples equal. We're all sinners. We all need God. We're all human beings. We're all one race at the end of the day. That's the idea of colorblindness. And there's actually an aspect of it, which is right, which I don't want to miss that. That actually is ultimately how we should see each other. We should see each other as fully human, as equal, as all being image bearers. That is the goal of where we want to get to. But it's a lie on two levels, one that's less serious, one that's more serious. Well, I don't, on one level, it's just theologically inaccurate, right? We already talked about Revelation 7, 9. Right? So clearly God sees differences in color, nationality, and difference. So it's actually ironically completely correcting God when we say we're colorblind. Like, God is clearly not colorblind, so we shouldn't be either. The much more serious thing, though, is we have a 400—evil has a 400-year head start on this one. Um, it, it, for 400 years, it's been using the lies of race to savage society. And so saying, I don't want to be racist and I don't condone racism does nothing to address the fact that We've got a, that evil has a 400 year head start on this stuff. And so what colorblindness does is right from the beginning says, I will never participate in whatever renewal efforts God has undertaken here because I refuse to acknowledge color or race as even existing, which of course gives you no chance then to understand how the 400 years of devastation has occurred. And so um, it's a profoundly dangerous um, way of viewing this, even if there's some parts of it that in a kind of Pollyannish way very much are true that I'm acknowledging. So that'd be another one. I think another immense lie that's used in a very powerful way is to say that race is not a biblical issue. We've kind of addressed this, but um, this this still comes up in Christian circles all over the place that's seen as a social issue that we should just focus on conversion, not be thinking about social issues. Um, yeah, I think that I think that, that is a, a gravely um, uh, what would be the right word? I, I, I think I don't think it just misses what Jesus is doing. I think I, I almost I almost feel like it's equivalent to like saying um, we don't take idolatry seriously. We just want to talk about conversion. It's like well, but the Bible takes idolatry seriously. That's part of conversion, right? So we 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 play God and say which things are important to God, which things aren't. When I think clearly this is a full fledged attack on the 
humanity of all of God's people. And so to take this privileged, powerful position that says race is an unimportant thing for the gospel to address, I think that's another immense lie that has to be kind of overturned um, in church spaces. So those are some that right off the bat come to me. Can you talk to us about other, um, yeah, I, I'm, so you, you just talked about some lies or, and, and things like that that are going on, but could you, are there other hurdles maybe, maybe they're not lies or things that are, that are communicated openly, but there are definitely hurdles for um, a white person as they're kind of taking this journey that they, they come to these things and, and it's like, it, it can stop people where, where, where they go. What are some, some of these other hurdles potentially that exist? So ironic. So I almost feel like there's, you know, so when I wrote Wide Awake, I kind of built around this metaphor of blindness of sight in the same way that Jesus told Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom until you're born again, that, you know, you have to kind of start over and seeing that there's this kind of movement from blindness of sight around race. And so I feel like there's two completely almost different fields where it's still blind to sight, but it's two totally different sets of experiences. So the first one is the white, what we're speaking to more, the white person who's never really thought about race that much. And there's all of these things that are kind of trappings that as you're coming to understand it, that you get lost kind of in denial or shame or disorientation, you know, whatever it would be. So that's kind of one enormous feel is how to move from somebody who's apathetic and inactive to you see it and you care deeply. Like that's one whole kind of transformational motif, I think. So we'll just kind of park that one there. Once you become a white person who sees that this is serious and sees that something has to be done and desires to be part of it, now you enter into a whole new field of blindness of sight, (laughs) which is somebody who cares about it but doesn't really understand it. And this is a tricky place to be where you want to be used, you want to be part of the problem, but really at the end of the day, nobody's even asking you to come help stuff, right? I mean, like, like there's this kind of really confusion around what am I even supposed to do with this, right? And so in that field, I, this is where I think, you know, again, we talk about white privilege sometimes, and I think there's a place to talk about that. But I think we always don't always talk about the other side of that, which is the white handicapped. And I think if, if we can kind of bind this definition that race is built around an assault on human dignity based on being not white, to be white means you've never really been exposed to the horrors of what race is. Like you can like literally live in this country your whole life and never understand it. And so once the light bulb is on, you are in this kind of handicapped position in that you can recognize in a theoretical way that this is super dangerous and super bad, but it's not experientially yours. It never will be experientially yours. You'll literally be trying to address something that you truly can't understand and never will understand. And that is a genuinely funky place to kind of operate from where I feel deeply moved to combat something that I theoretically understand is bad, but I will never understand experientially and it will never actually be my personal struggle. (laughs) And yet, and at the same time, if I do nothing, I just continue to benefit from it and perpetuate it, right? That's just... Uh, And the bad news is, like, you don't ever graduate from that play. Like, that is the permanent liability that comes with being white in this stuff, is that the very same system that privileged you that you want to defeat, it's it's not one you'll ever understand. And so I think there's something that's very um, foreign to those of us who grew up in this kind of a culture. We have to learn how to be part of the solution without understanding it fully and just kind of embracing that as a way of life that— we're going to have to rely on those who do understand it to be the leaders in this realm um, and then kind of join forces with them, not start our own things or devise our own strategies to defeat something that we don't really understand. So it's a long way of getting that. That For the person who actually does care about this, which I think is very different than the one who's on the journey of understanding it, I think that's where our work becomes of like, how do we 
live with the simultaneous reality like i can't stand this thing i think it's evil and i don't understand it and can't be the one who leads the charge against it um i have to kind of put myself in collaborative spaces with those who are actually most affected by it mm-hmm. <laughs> to put it bluntly for me as a pastor I will never do something that affects black people if black folks aren't inviting me into it. And I will never do something that affects brown folks if brown folks don't invite me into it. Um, so that's kind of a clunky process. Yeah, I care deeply about this stuff, but it's not my thing to initiate. It's, it's, it's something where I have to join forces with those who are already trying to attack these problems. Mm-hmm. I feel like you've kind of answered the, the question in your last statement, but I'm just going to ask just ask the question out loud. So in, in light of all the things that you're saying, um, what's the proper place then that a white person should uh, kind of fit or reside within this conversation? What's what's going to be the posture, or what's what's the spot that they should that they that a white person fits within this greater conversation? And again, you may have answered some of that well, already. And I think it's good to explicitly address it. So I think I think the dis- disproportionate number of our energy should actually go towards seeing more clearly. I, think, I don't think we actually measure activity around learning. We think of learning something we should do before we go do the work. But learning, um, if we were able to go 25, 20, 30 years, however long it was before we started seriously engaging with this, if we went that long without ever really looking at race, that means we just like do not understand it at all. Um, and so um, I, I want, like I think of this as a discipleship activity. I want the white folks in my environments to get better and better and faster and faster and more and more precise. It's seeing the assault on humanity that comes through race and to see it happening all around them uh, until they can see it in everyday interactions, until they can see it in the, the embedded structures of schools and hospitals and neighborhoods, until they can see it on their own. Um, until we can see it on our own, we're not really positioned to do much about it anyway. So I think a disproportionate amount of our energy should go into just learning about the nature of white supremacy and finding as many places as we can to learn about it and get instruction on it so that we can see it. Because uh, I think without seeing it, we can't. It's, it's kind of like the biblical idea, like you can't defeat a de- demon you can't name. Right? You, mm-hmm. when, Jesus would, when Jesus would cast out a demon, I would say, what's your name? Right? We are legion. We are many. Right? Like White supremacy is powerful and is many. And until we can see it. Um, so I think a disproportionate amount of energy should just go into learning. And if that strikes somebody who's like, well, that's not doing anything, I mean, I think you'd be surprised. Most of the people of color in your life are not asking you to do something. Like, they would just love it if you could see it more clearly, right? Like, um, I think we underestimate how hard it is to see and how important that is to the struggle. So I say disproportionate amount of energy. Then second, you know, I think then it's individual and systemic. That's the combination. So I think we need to keep uprooting it within our own lives. We've all been affected by this set of lies. So learning to see it in our own lives and how it affects us and how we see our neighbor. And then I really do think at some point, this is the gradual level of work where we need to get to. We all need to pick certain fields where we're doing work to uproot white supremacy. You know, so like for me, I'm trying to do it in the church, but also elsewhere. But for people in professional spaces, we need to learn how educators you know, can work together to uproot white supremacy. We need to learn how healthcare professionals can work together to uproot white supremacy. And so for an individual, what I would say is eventually what you want to do is you want to find a collective of people who are working on it in one particular sphere, in a sphere where you might be gifted and able to kind of participate in that. And that's that's what we need to get to is collective work that's trying to uproot the supremacy messages and inferiority messages that come with race. So what help do you see more clear, clearly, or what have you seen helps other people see more clearly? Is it just being around different uh, people of different races or reading books by people or documentaries or stuff like that? What, what has helped you see more clearly? 
Yeah, um, it's a great question. So I, I, mean, I, I think this is another balancing act. It, there's a lot of input that we need as white people to see more clearly, but it's asking a lot of people of color to be the one who are our guides, where they're kind of re-traumatizing themselves as they teach us. So um, I would suggest, like, I think starting off, white folks should center as much as possible, not having to have a person of color do the work for them. I think as many things as we can read, as many things we can listen to, like kind of what you guys are doing here, as many, you know, like basically to say it's, it's more succinctly, we should learn everything that's learnable without having to require a person of color. We should go as far as we can go without involving people. And there's so much good material out there. And then I would say there is a point that comes, but it's only after you've like really filled your mind with this book. There is a point that comes that you have to have some people of color who are kind of walking with you in this process where they're helping you spot ways that your own mentality is still corrupted by the messaging of race in a way that you can't get from a podcast or a book or a sermon or something. And so there does come a point, but when that happens... It should be done delicately. It should be done thoughtfully. It should acknowledge the price you're asking of the person of color that you're asking to be kind of a mentor in that. So I do think there comes a point where you can't move forward without that. But I don't think we should step into that moment until we've exhausted all the other opportunities we have to get knowledgeable on this. And to, all the questions that seem new to us are not new. Right? They get asked over and over and over. So we might as well be reading and listening to people who have already walked this journey. And again, get to the upper limits of what we can get to based on our own self-guided journey. And at that point, I think we can enter the delicate combination of relying on some racially conscious people of color to take us on a journey. So for the person who's wanting to get started on this and learn, you know, um, and do their own research before talking with uh, people of different colors and races and stuff like that, um, do you have any recommendations, whether it be books or podcasts or movies or documentaries or anything along those lines that might be a good um, a, a starter set for people? I mean, there's so, I mean, we live in a world of like so much information on this stuff now. It's not that difficult to find. I mean, I, it's, you know, I feel like there's, um, this is great. Podcasts are doing stuff like this. Um, uh, you know, 13th, the documentary 13th is a good one. The book Color of Compromise that just came out is a historical survey of how the white church basically enabled racism at every step, step of the way. So it helps us understand the complicity within racism. Um, I've got this of, but, you know, th- those are pretty fine. If you guys want to post something, we could post something. But yeah, yeah, I, I feel like there's a, such an abundance now of material that really gets to this that you don't have to look too hard to find some like, really strong materials. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, hey, uh, what, what would you just say? And we, we've kind of alluded to it, um, but maybe just to explicitly state it. What would you say is at stake if, you know, individually and even corporately as, a tr- as the church, we refuse to pursue this? Um, uh, this pursuit of um, diversity and even unity as it concerns racial unity and diversity. Yeah, uh, I mean, every one of these is going to seem like charge statements. I mean, I think we profane. I think we profane the name of Christ when we don't deal with this stuff. I think that race mocks Jesus and His kingdom. It challenges that which is most significant to Jesus of human dignity, and it's a constant assault. And so, I think we mock Jesus when we proclaim His name and then don't deal with the number one assault that I would say is kind of coming against Him. I think. Biblical unfaithful. I think there's such a strong idea of idolatry being named, and um, uh, um, it's a system of idolatry that's just unchallenged by the white church. So I think it's terrible there. I think I think it profoundly compromises our witness. You know, if, if the Great Commission is to bear witness to Jesus and His kingdom, 
you know, I mean, you guys, it's, I'm sure your crowd is largely millennial, right? I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's epic how fast people are walking away from the church. And I think the complicity with white supremacy and other sinful kinds of things, but white supremacy, the top list, the, the, the way that that's manifested now sociologically, politically, um, for the small handful of people who are converting to Christianity, the number is so much larger of those who are walking away from it. And I don't think in this day and age, you can hardly even evangelize. If, if you can help people understand why Jesus cares about these things, you don't really even know how to talk about Jesus at the end of the day. So not only is the witness compromised for those who have walked away, but even you're trying to witness to somebody, if all you know how to do is say, you know, you should say to Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins, but you don't know how to talk about how Jesus sees what's ravaging society, then we clearly just don't even know Jesus. You know, we don't know how to talk about him. So I think our ability to um, do evangelism in this day and age is so severely compromised. And then I think it's a discipleship issue. I would I would put the, the ability to discern between truth and lies. I would include that as one of the fundamental discipleship activities to recognize that which is truth being of Jesus and that which is lies being of the devil. And the, the fact that most white Christians can't even differentiate truth and lies at a basic level, to me, is a discipleship crisis that we're basically forming people to only know one aspect of life in Christ and some of the most day-to-day realities that are needed for following him that people don't even possess those skills. So I think it's a discipleship crisis as well. Mm-hmm. How do you start this conversation within, within churches? And, and, and how, how do we, not only do, how do we start it, but, but where does it need to start within churches? I, mean, I think it fits within a number. I mean, I think there's multiple theological motifs um, that are central motifs that we just don't, we don't take it all the way there, you know? So, I mean, I think, uh, starting Old Testament, I'll probably start in Genesis 1, 26, 27, with the image of God, the likeness of God, and that the creation account culminates with human beings being image bearers, and that being what gives glory to God in the most high way. And so that just developing a basic theology, that anything compromises the dignity of human beings, anything that challenges and attacks the personhood of, of people creating God's image is a direct challenge to God's very self. And um, that should just be basic theology independent of race. But once you have that conversation, then again, race immediately from there has to be addressed. Because in the New Testament, you know, I think there's different ways to talk about the gospel, and I think we should highlight them all. I don't think it should be just one. But, you know, in the New Testament, the, the, the first mode that Jesus uses is the kingdom, right? He says, repent for the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of God is near. And so I think we need to have better kingdom theology, right? Because that's the Lord's prayer, right? We're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, earth as it is in heaven. So I think in evangelical spaces, which is where I come from, I don't know what all you guys affiliate with in evangelical spaces, we do a good job of talking about kingship in terms of our own personal lives, that we should surrender our own lives to the king of kings and submit to him. But the kingdom of God is farther reaching than just our own individual hearts, right? Like all society is to bend a knee to the created order. It's, it's to look to how heaven is created around human dignity and equality, and earth should reflect that, and we should pray to it, and we should actually pray for protection against the evil one who's trying to spread lies. That's how the Lord prayer ends, right? And so um, so I think if we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and pray for it to come to heaven on earth, really about as basic of an image as you could get in the New Testament, um, I don't think you can even have a conversation around the kingdom of God without immediately coming to the kingdom of race and how substantial of an enemy that is to the work of God. I think you go on and on. You can do Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, it's like the essence of transformation is do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, right? Well, what are the patterns of this world? Most school that was drinking and, you know, how you dress and stuff like that. So, but man, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find it conforming to this world, patterns of this world more than race in the messaging that's ascribed to that. So if we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind 
to know what the Lord's good, perfect reason and will is, we have to be able to understand what's so dangerous about how the messaging around race works. So it's 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 not even that you have to look hard for these. It's more as you have to say every mode of transformation we talk about, we've learned how to talk about it without acknowledging the obvious. Um, we, we, and um, we have to go back to the things that we're already familiar with and realize how this isn't adding something new. It's going back and realizing we pretty deliberately skipped over the most natural application for most of these um, theological motifs. And we have to go back and frankly, I think repent that we've kind of perpetuated a gospel that continues to dance around the most obvious applications of it. And so it's not, I don't think we have to invent new things. I think we just have to like go back to the things we already believe and um, take them to their full extent. Where are you being challenged right now as it concerns uh, racial unity and diversity? And then on the, I'm kind of, you know, on the other side of that, where, where are you encouraged? Like, are you seeing progress in like these conversations at all? Yes, I mean, though I care about the practice of stuff a lot, I'm a theologian at heart most. I care deeply about the Bible and the witness of Christ and his kingdom. And so on the discouraging side, I would still say, for the most part, this is a taboo topic in white Christian spaces. I mean, they want it, they say they want to talk about it, but as soon as you start talking about it, every every white church I know, um, not every, most white churches I know that have taken any kind of serious move towards about race has lost an enormous amount of its parishioners. Um, and, and it's for very basic conversations, right, of like talking about these racial storylines, talking about Black Lives Matter and why that's a theologically appropriate thing to say, even if you're not talking about the movement, but it's a theologically appropriate thing to say, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I know a church who did a three-week series on Black Lives Matter, and that's all they were saying is Black Lives Matter because all lives matter. And they lost their top 25 givers from the church. All 25 left over the series, right? So I think it's daunting to remember that this is not like a baby step or something, or like we just need to get a little bit better. Like there's a supernaturally protected lie. And even when the church tries to expose that lie, um, it's a, it's a huge threat. And so it's very sad and very sobering to see how deeply entrenched that lie is and how hard even basic things like truth and lies is to talk about. On the hopeful side, I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, regardless where somebody falls politically, I think there's no question that the 2016 election of President Trump kind of laid bare not only where societies that are on race, but where the churches that are on race. And so there has been a night and day difference in terms of like churches that did not used to want to talk about this very much want to talk about it now. I'm being invited nonstop in a church spaces to talk about a theology of this stuff. And I really do think there's something about the kind of church being laid bare that has led to that. So I don't think it means change yet necessarily, but there's no question that the appetite and discourse level is way higher now than it was two years ago. And so that's a good sign, if nothing else. And I hope that it's more than that. I hope it's a harbinger of things to come where we have kind of a national sense of reckoning around this stuff. Mm-hmm. Where can the average person start if, if, they're, if they're saying, hey, this may be this is the first time I've really heard a substantial conversation about this. Um, where would that person start? What would they do? I mean, we've talked about starting to read and consume things on your on on their own, and and really began to to broaden the horizon. But what's the first step or steps that that person should take? I think I mean I think the two tracks of transformation are going to be theology, most importantly, and then history, secondly. I think we can't understand where how to move forward until we understand how we got where we are. So in a perfect world, it would be your own church where you can get inputs around those things, but for a lot of white Christians, they're going to find that's not the place. So I would say those are the two categories you want to start filling your mind with is like good theology around this stuff of like how from a biblical perspective we can 
understand how serious race is. Um, and if you don't have that in your own church, I and mean, I think there people are welcome to our podcast, we talk about it a lot. There's a couple of podcasts I like a lot that are actually black centered, but it would still be helpful for I think white folks to listen to would be um, the truth table and pass the mic. Not that I'm not promoting you guys. This is great. You're talking about, but if somebody wants ongoing, sustained conversation around issues affecting the black community in particular, pass the mic and truth table would be great resources. Um, and then history, I think. Yeah, I already mentioned color compromise. I think that's such a really well done historical survey of the church specifically. So I would say that somebody we need to we need to have an accelerated learning track around theology and most importantly in history, secondly around this notion of race. So anywhere, I think again, there's stuff readily available. So if you can't find it in your own church, I think you gotta go. That's ideally if you'd be in a church that can recite like this stuff, but there's still not enough of those. So it's not always gonna be immediately accessible. Yep. Well, Daniel, th- Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. I know that people are going to want to pick up your book and connect with you and continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for them to go to do those things? I think wherever wherever it can be found. And then I've got, you know, I'm trying to blog a little bit more on my, my personal site. is pastordanielhill.com and trying to keep the conversation going there too. So I thank you for the work you guys are doing and grateful to be a guest of yours today. Yeah. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Caleb, what'd you get from that interview? Yeah, I think there was, um, I think there was a lot of good stuff in that, especially because, you know, having a conversation, and obviously the conversation <coughs> was bigger than um, just white culture and whiteness in general. I think that's something that isn't looked at, um, especially by our culture very much, especially by white people. We don't, we don't take the time to, to learn about our own history and our own culture um, because we're the dominant culture, at least right now. And so I would just say one of the things that I took away is just always being willing to, to learn about yourself and your history, no matter, no matter whether or not you're in a position of power or not. I'm with you. Um, I think it was a powerful episode. I think it was a powerful takeaway. And I love that he really has taken the initiative of examining some of his own presuppositions and, and, and what he's done with that, particularly in a church, you know, as he's has worked in, you know, these churches that are huge, massive, massive organizations. And I think it's just another um, great sign that some of these conversations are beginning to happen. Love that. Yep. And so if you enjoyed this conversation, the best way to make sure you don't miss our next episode is by what Todd subscribing it's totally free and it's something that will just ensure that you don't miss one of these episodes and also we're going to be dropping an episode later this week about um, what we learned from the orange conference so you won't miss that episode and next week we're going to be talking with Julian Guthrie and she wrote a book called Alpha Girls and it's a story about women uh, who, who took on Silicon Valley's male culture and made the deals of a lifetime. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. Again, the best way to make sure you don't miss it is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. Also, don't forget to leave a rating and write a review if our podcast has helped you in any way, whether that be something that you've learned or maybe you've picked up a book recommendation or another podcast as well that someone on our show has done before. Please leave us a rating and write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate it very much. So thank you for listening to today's episode of The Learner's Corner. My name is Kayla Mason. My name is not Kayla Mason. It is, in fact, Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.